Okay, we are in Acts chapter 8. And we had covered before the ministry of Philip, the evangelist, to the Samaritan people. And the Samaritans were deeply racist against the Jews, even though they were, ha- they, they were mixed. They were not just a mixed race, but a mixed religion. But they were deeply racist against the Jews, so much so that when, when Jesus was coming through Samaria with his, heart, with his face set toward Jerusalem, they wouldn't even receive him. Well, they received the gospel. So we see that these hardened people received the gospel. And now, reading in verse 25 of Acts chapter 8. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and he went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well... How could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears, it it is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life was removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? of himself or someone else. And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the Scriptures, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he was baptized. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through and kept preaching the gospel in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Okay, so Philip dealt with a group of people that were really quite biased against the Jews. There was a hard group of people, and this is the way they thought, but God opened the door. God opened a ministry there and changed the people's hearts. Now, in his ministry to this Ethiopian, this Ethiopian was a convert to Judaism. Maybe he was a natural-born Jew, maybe he was a convert to Judaism, we don't know, but he certainly participated in the Judaistic practices. And the practices, so three times a year they had to go, a Jew had to go to Jerusalem. So you had the, 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 the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So they, all male Jews had to go to Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts. And so the eunuch was going up and observing this. Now, if the eunuch was a convert to Judaism, he could not have been what was called a full convert. And we know that because he was a eunuch. And full converts had to have entrance into the temple. And we know from the Old Testament that if any man had been castrated, he could not come into the temple according to the Judaic rules. But he was called then a convert of the gate. And many converts to Judaism of those days were called converts of the gate. 
that the full converts were often women who came into Judaism. But the men often didn't become full converts. And the reason for that becomes obvious once you, you, know, you, you know the clincher here. For someone to be a full convert to Judaism from another religion, for any male to be, he had to be circumcised. And so many males went up to the point of being called a convert of the gate. Uh, 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 but they wouldn't, they wouldn't go that extra step. But for women, it was a little bit easier, and so they would become full converts. There were also another category, and they, those were called... So, so, so you had the full convert, convert of the gate, and then below that was called a God-fearer. And we see that in Cornelius. We see that in, in uh, uh, another centurion, which Jesus praised. And these are people who rejected the idol worship and realized that there is one true God, the God of Israel, and they honored that true God. And these were called God-fearers. So these were the, the three categories of converts that the Jews had in those days. This Ethiopian was at least a convert of the gate. And he had come up for this practice, and it says in verse, in verse 26, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, so he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this guy was really an important guy. In Ethiopia at that time, there, there, there was a king, but the king was considered too holy to deal with everyday affairs. So his mother ran all the everyday affairs, so it was very much a matriarchy. And, and uh, uh, so his mother would be in charge of all the, the routine affairs. And, and we, we pronounce this the, the official of Candace. Candace is like Pharaoh. It's a particular name. And we, we pronounce it Candace, but it's really phonetically Candake. So in some translations, you will see it spelled out that way. And that's probably more, more accurate. And so she was queen of the Ethiopians in charge of everything. And Ethiopia wasn't exactly the Ethiopian territory that there is today. It was in North Africa, but the territory was a little bit different. It was, in fact, larger than it is today. And it was a very wealthy city, a very wealthy country. And he was in charge of all the queen's treasures. And so what they would do is they would castrate these men who would deal with the queen to make sure that there was no funny business with the men that were taking care of them. This was common practice. And he was chief in charge of all her treasures. He happened to be either a Jew by birth or a Jewish convert. And he was going to Jerusalem to worship. So that gives us a setting for, for who this guy is. So he has somewhat of an open heart here toward the things of Judaism. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he happened to be reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, I'll tell you, Jews are a lot like Baptists in that not a lot of them read their scriptures. And so if you, you think that somebody, you know, is a Jew in Israel today, they must, you know, really know the Old Testament. They don't necessarily. Now, there are Orthodox Jews that read quite a lot and spend a lot of time in the scriptures, but, but it's not unusual for a lot of Jews not to read the scriptures very much. But this guy was really quite observant. To go up three times a year at the feast was a big deal. So this guy would have to travel, obviously, with an entourage. We know he was traveling in a chariot. We know that he, he did, was not driving the chariot himself because he commanded that the chariot should stop. And he was reading the scriptures. <clears throat> so he was a man very interested in the scriptures. So now, 
Philip is coming and he's sharing with somebody who is quite open to the Jewish Scriptures. Previously, he had just shared with the Samaritans who didn't have much regard for the Jewish Scriptures as it related to Jerusalem at all. Here, this is a man who embraces the Jewish Scriptures. And he's reading it, and he's reading it aloud in his chariot. And apparently, from what I've read, is that reading aloud was a far more common practice than people would read aloud to themselves than it is today. In fact, we're almost discouraged from reading aloud. You know, we're, at least when I was a kid in school, the teacher said, stop moving your lips. We were encouraged not to, to move our lips and just to read as quickly as we could. And, and it says, the Spirit said to Philip, go and join this chariot. So the Spirit is talking to Philip and saying, go and join this chariot. Do this. This is something I want you to do. So first, it says back earlier in, 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 in the portion, it says in verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, go south to the road that descends to Gaza. So first, he says, go south to that road that descends to Gaza. That is a desert road. And now the Spirit is speaking to him. Generally, the way the, the Lord speaks to us is through the Scriptures and through His Spirit bearing witness to us. But I caution you, because it is easy to hear the Lord wrong. Just as you think, oh, the Lord spoke to me, the Lord spoke to me, the Lord spoke to me. Many times I've felt the Lord speaking to me, and it has been clearly not the Lord speaking to me. Because if it had been the Lord speaking to me, it would have come to pass. So, so it is easy to hear, the, the, to, to think that the Spirit is talking to us, and it not be the Spirit. And that's why it's very good to have the guidance of the Scriptures that allow the Lord to speak to us through the Scriptures. But also to have the guidance of the fellowship of the body of Christ. So the, the Spirit speaks to Philip and he says, go and join this chariot. Now think of this. First he tells him, go and go down to this desert road. And he's probably wondering, what is there on this desert road? It's a desert road. Well, then this big entourage starts coming down the road and the Spirit says, I want you to go and join this chariot. Now, this guy had such a high position, it is unlikely that somebody could just run up to the chariot. Probably had guards and everything around him. This guy is in charge of all the queen's treasures. And so he's probably running alongside this chariot. But there's some fear there. You know, the same lump that you get in your throat when you feel that God is asking you to go and to share the scriptures with somebody, or go and share the Lord. You know, all of us have been put through, you know, the, the evangelism things, you know, you've got to go out, you've got to do this, and it, you know, it's a bit of a frightening thing. He probably had too. I mean, this was quite an impressive entourage going by. And then, when he ran up, he happens to hear the guy reading from the prophet Isaiah, from the Old Testament. And he happens to be reading the portion about Jesus being as a, as, as a he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So he's reading about the very Messiah himself. And so probably Philip puts this together. Yeah, this is, now I understand. This guy's reading this. And Philip runs up, heard him reading. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, how could I understand unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up with him. So, and, and to sit with him. So this is quite an invitation. And so they're going down now, down this desert road, in this chariot, and it says that Philip starts, the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this of, of himself or of someone else? 
And then Philip opened his mouth and began from the, from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So he took that very passage and he preached Jesus to him. Well, think about it. This is not the four spiritual laws. This is not the portion that, you know, Philip had learned in evangelism school. He just had to take the passage that was at hand and start sharing it. And start opening it up and sharing Jesus from this passage. And this is very often what God calls us to, is to take the conversation at hand and to bring it to talk about Jesus. You know, whenever I sit in an airplane, I feel obliged to share with the person next to me. And the only time I don't share the Lord with them is if as soon as they get on, they plug something in their ears, and they don't unplug it till we land. You know, if they put those things on and they watch the movie and they never take the things off, I can't break in. But if they're reading a book, I'll kind of try to say something to get their attention and bring it around to a conversation where I can share Jesus. This is exactly what Philip did. He saw where the guy was, and from that passage, he started to share with him. We do have some level of obligation to share. We really do. And I don't mean to heap conviction on you. The Lord does that. We have some obligation to share. And then he starts sharing with this guy, and this guy is so open, so open, And then he says in verse 36, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So, one of the things that Philip must have talked with him about was baptism. And the guy says, What prevents me from being baptized? He says, Nothing. It says, says, uh, um, uh, in verse 38, And he ordered the chariot to stop. So, in other words, he's not driving this chariot himself. He orders it to stop. They both went down into the water. You know, if if you're just going to get sprinkled, you don't have to get in the water. I mean, Philip could have just, you know, dipped his finger in there and, and gone like that. And it's over. No, they went down into the water. And think about the humbling thing. Here is a guy who's got a whole group of people traveling with him. He sits in a chair and he's got nice clothes. He's in charge of all the treasures. And he's got to, you know, strip down to, to, his, to his underwear and get into the water and get baptized. This is kind of a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to be baptized. It is a humbling thing. There's lots of people looking at you, and you are saying, I want to identify with Christ in these waters of baptism. I want to identify with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And the reason we get baptized is because the Bible instructs us to do so. Not because of tradition, not because of Baptist thought, not because of Protestant thought, but because the Bible instructs us to do so. And many people do not get baptized because of the embarrassment, because of the humbling experience that it is. Well, let me tell you something. As dignified as you are, as high a position as you've got, you are not as dignified as this Ethiopian eunuch. And he stopped the chariot, he says... There's water, I'd better be baptized, because Philip covered with him the requirement of baptism. And he went and he humbled himself and he got baptized. And most people who are believers do not get baptized because of this whole issue of being unable to humble themselves. And it is an act of not just failure to obey, it is an outright act of disobedience because of my will that I don't want the embarrassment of standing before people and getting dunked underwater. 
This is part of God's plan. This is part of God's plan to teach us humility to walk in a certain way. If you have never been baptized after believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that I see in Scripture is after people believed they were baptized. And my children were baptized after they believed and long after they believed. They had to believe to the extent that it really meant something and there was some peer pressure there. Because I wanted them to experience this, that they were testifying to the world that I believe Jesus Christ and I want to witness Him in these waters of baptism. And I never forced baptism upon them. I'd say, baptism is something that you need to do. And then when they were little kids, I said, no, you're not ready. I want to be sure that you feel some of the pressure here. If you've not been baptized since believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, humble yourself, obey the Scriptures and be baptized. Everybody that I know who has refused to be baptized has not gone on deeply with the Lord. And you say, oh, well, that can't be. I'm just saying my experience, everybody that I've known who has refused to walk with God in the waters of baptism, in obedience to the waters of baptism, has not gone on deeply with the Lord. And there are always areas that keep them back in their life from really pressing in. And they see all these people projecting on with the Lord and they're wondering, what's going on with me? And I'll tell you what the problem is. It is an outright act of disobedience to not be baptized. And it is a very simple thing. You go to this church, you tell Roger, you fill out a form, I'd like to be baptized, I've never been baptized since believing. And they will take you and they'll put you up in in that thing and, and... The screen will go up, boom, you get dunked, you're out, that's it. You say, well, that's kind of humbling, you know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of a dignified person. I believe you are dignified. Well, learn to put down your dignity for the sake of God and walk with Him in the waters of baptism. And the longer you wait, the harder it will be. You know, now you're a student. One day you're going to be a professor. And, you're going to, and God's still going to be calling you, walk with me in the waters of baptism. And you think it'll be easier then? I mean, with what students do on the Rice campus, I can't imagine that you're going to lose much dignity by walking with God in the waters of baptism. Walk with Him in the waters of baptism. And then it says in verse 39, when they came up out of the water, so there were... In the water, they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. I mean, this eunuch was really amazing. This was an easy evangelistic uh, 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 mission. The eunuch was really easy. The guy happened to be reading the Scriptures and saying, I need somebody to teach me. He was just ready to receive the Gospel. Let's look at the contrast now. Verse 9, uh, chapter 9 of, of Acts, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he, and he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both Men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was traveling. As he was traveling, it happened that he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So again, we see the man was immediately baptized. Here was a guy who had a very high position. He went out immediately and he got baptized. But what I want to look at is this conversion of Saul. Saul in, in chapter 9, verse 1, <clears throat> it says that, that uh, <clears throat> Saul was still breathing threats. It says that the threats were just coming out of him. He was breathing threats. It became part of, <clears throat> part of his life. If you, you, you feel angry about something, if you feel bitter about something, and you keep voicing this, you will feel all the more bitter. C.S. Lewis says, he puts it this way, he says that the Germans hated the Jews in the 1930s, just hated them. And so what they started to do is, as they hated them more, they started to throw stones through their store, store windows. And you'd think that, oh, that would then pacify their hatred, that's enough, I got my hatred disposed of now. But no, they then had to gather up the Jews and put them into these slum areas and say, that's where you folks will live. And you'd think that that would pacify everything for them, that, that they'd be fine now because they fulfilled their hatred. No, it made them hate them more. And then they said, no, you guys can't live here in these slum areas. You're going to live in concentration camps. And then, instead of that satisfying them, they said, no, we've got to exterminate them totally. And even after millions had been exterminated, that did not satisfy the hatred. The more we allow hatred to fester, the worse it will become. It is never fulfilled. It is never satisfied. We must turn this over to the Lord and give it to the Lord. If you're, if you're racist, if you have hatred against any group of people or any person, don't allow that thing to fester. And you might say, well, you don't know what that individual has done to me. You don't have to relate to them. You don't have to invite them over your home. But you can't let this hatred fester in your heart. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to change your heart toward that person. There have been people that have hurt members of my family a lot. And God has had to continually, by my cry to Him, say, change my heart toward this individual. 
I have no dealings with the individual, but I can't allow that hatred to fester in my heart toward them. And I say, God, this is coming back. Release me of this. Release me of this and let me see that man as Jesus sees him. Many women who have been sexually abused deal with the same issue and they say, I could never do this. I'm not the one calling you to do this. The man who has been pierced through and hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Is the one that appeals to you and says, learn to walk in forgiveness so you don't have to breathe hatred all the time. Because your hatred will never be fulfilled. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way as well. If someone is irritating you, someone at work bothers you a lot, and you just feel this hatred rising up, he says, think about what you would do for that person if you loved them. If you loved them, what would you do for them? Well, if I, if I loved the guy, I would at least say hello to him. So C.S. Lewis says, say hello to him. And then say, Lord, what would I do for this person if I loved him? Well, if you really love the person, you know, you'd bring that woman flowers, the person that really bothers you. Bring her flowers some morning. And you know what will happen? Just as fulfilling of hatred makes you hate more, fulfilling of good makes you like more. You will like that person more as you do good to them. This man was breathing anger and breathing threats. And I'll tell you, we can all fall into this and get like this. And allow the Lord to turn this thing around. You say, well, this person offended me. There is a man who hung on a cross. And while hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. He is the one that appeals to you. Not me. He is the one. But this Saul was breathing threats. And he was going and he, he, you say, well, what do the Jews, what does the Sanhedrin have to do with Damascus? Damascus is not Israel. Well, there was an agreement between parts of Rome and Damascus being one of those cities and the Sanhedrin that concerning articles of, of religious acts of the Jews, that there could be the right of extradition. So that there could, they could extradite somebody from that city if it had to do with a religious issue for the Jews and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And so that is what Paul is going with. He's going with letters from the high priest, from the Sanhedrin, the, the, these letters of extradition. So he must have had you know, quite, quite a contingent of guards with him because they're going to be bringing back a group of people who are following this, this, uh, this one called Jesus. And it says that on the way, he is hit to the ground. He falls to the ground because of a bright light. It was so intense that he fell to the ground. If you take my picture, I'm not going to fall down. If the paparazzi come in and start taking a lot of pictures of me, I might you, you know, get my eyes bleached for a while so they can't see, but I'm not going to fall down. This was a very bright light. And it says that it happened at noontime. If you read in Acts chapter 22, Paul recounts this from his own words, rather than, than Luke just reporting what happened. And he says it was right around noontime. So it wasn't like the bright light hit at midnight, and he was stunned because of a bright light. It was noontime when this bright light came and just knocked him to the ground. I don't know if he was on a horse, or a mule, or a chariot, or just walking. I don't know. But he fell to the ground. 
This is again a dignified, high-ranking guy. He falls to the ground. He's not, you know, a nutcase breakdancing. He's a dignified guy. He doesn't normally fall on the ground. Knocks him to the ground. That's what Jesus does. He just hit him so hard, he went right to the ground. He didn't ask him, do you mind if uh, my Holy Spirit comes and visits you? Because if you don't want it, I wouldn't bring it. You know, I, I, I only come and visit people that want it. You know, God didn't do that. Boom! Just hit him. Just hit him to the ground. God does whatever he wants. Hit him to the ground. And he says, Saul, Saul, using his name twice is very meaningful to the Jews. Samuel, Samuel is the way God spoke to Samuel when he wanted his attention. Uh, uh, Jacob, 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 when he wanted Jacob's attention. Saying the name more than once meant something to Jews. That is when God is about to do a high call. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul never persecuted Jesus directly. Paul wasn't there. There is no reference to Paul being there at the persecution of Jesus, at the trial of Jesus. Paul never mentions that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Some people say he is. When Paul recounts his life in Judaism, he says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Had he been a member of the Sanhedrin, he probably would have included that because he talks about the the degree of zeal. He had nothing to do directly with the persecution of Jesus. But you see what Jesus says. You persecute one of these, you persecute me. The scriptures say of Israel, this is, in our scriptures it says, this is the apple of my eye. In, in, in some texts translated actually more accurately, it says, Israel is the pupil of my eye, God says. You know, I will allow people to shake my hands. Right? One who is very intimate with you is allowed to touch your head. In our culture, people do not touch your head, right? Except someone who is very intimate with you. That's just a cultural thing. And, and, uh, and my wife can touch my head and I don't react like, what's going on here? You're a weirdo or something. No, this is my wife. But I do not allow her to touch my pupil. She cannot touch the pupil of my eye. That is so sensitive to me that nobody can touch that. I can barely touch it myself. God says of Israel, this is the pupil of my eye. Jesus says, in the same way, when you persecute them, you persecute me. You drag them into prison. You are dragging me into prison. Remember, when people say something about you because of your witness of Jesus, just remember, they are saying this of Jesus much more than they're saying it of you. And Jesus takes this as a personal thing toward Him. And then we can say, Lord, it is my glory to bear this in Your name. Because Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But look at the difference in people here. You had the Samaritans, one group of people who hated the Jews, but they weren't going out and persecuting them unless they came through their town. Then you get a guy who 
just is on the verge of coming to the Lord so easy, a target. And then you get another guy who's so far from the Lord, you couldn't, you, you, you couldn't ever think of this guy coming to the Lord. And that's why Ananias, when he's sent to pray for, for Paul, his first cry to the Lord is, Lord, don't you know about this guy? He's come with letters. He persecutes everybody. And the Lord doesn't say, oh, yes, yes. He just says, go. He says, go. I want you to do this. Go. That's it. You know, he doesn't you know, rationalize a whole bunch of stuff for Ananias. But here's a guy so hard against the Lord. There are different people that God draws from different backgrounds. And all of us are drawn to him from different backgrounds. And this is good. We bring, each of us brings our own set of strengths and our own set of weaknesses. And God takes us and uses each group of us. And I was reading this morning in a book by Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon is this prince of preachers. And he's talking about, this is in a chapter called The Minister's Fainting Fits. And he's talking about how ministers, how preachers of the Word of God, himself included, go through times of great depression. They bring with them into the kingdom of God great periods of depression that they cycle through. And he talks about Luther. How Luther, even to his dying breath, he had accomplished so much, and he dies and enters heaven's glory in weeping. And so, so he, he's, he's talking about the troubles that we have in life and the things that we bring with us and how weak we are and how we're, we're really men with clay feet. And he says, Grace guards us from much of this, but because we have not more of grace, we still suffer even from ills preventable. Even under the economy of redemption, it is most clear that we are to endure infirmities. Otherwise, there were no need of promised spirit to help us in them. It is of need be that we are sometimes in heaviness. Good men are promised tribulation in this world, and ministers may expect, expect a larger share than others, that they may learn sympathy with the Lord's suffering people, and so may be fitting shepherds of an ailing flock. Disembodied spirits might have been sent to proclaim the word, but they could not have entered into the feelings of those who, being in this body, do groan being burdened. Angels might have been ordained evangelists, but their celestial attributes would have disqualified them from having compassion on the ignorant. Men of marble might have been fashioned, but their impassive natures would have been a sarcasm upon our feebleness and a mockery of our wants. Men and men subject to human passions, the all-wise God has chosen to be his vessels of grace. Hence these tears, hence these perplexities, and castings down. So you see, God brings people from all sorts of background, with all sorts of weaknesses, and He brings them into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, come. And there is redemption in Him only. There is no other way. There is redemption only in Jesus Christ. And you can say, well, if we get these people educated, then they'll be good. No! They may make a good living. But it's not going to make them good. Only Jesus can begin to change the hearts. And even with this, we are feeble and weak. But only Jesus changes the hearts. There is no philosophy that is going to change you. It is the redemption that comes from Jesus entering the heart and taking away our sin and calling us forth. And it is only through fellowship with Him that we can continue in this. Only through fellowship with Him that we can continue 
walking with Him and being used of Him. And this is what God does. He calls different types of people from different environments, each with their own kind of weakness, and He says, come, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use your past. I'm going to use your past weaknesses. I'm going to use your past strengths. I'm going to take you and use you in the kingdom of God, in my kingdom. And He welcomes us. And that's the beauty of Jesus. He welcomes us. And those who are feeble, those who are weak-minded, those who, are, who, who can't even think through anything sophisticated, Jesus says, come. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. The weakness of this world is, is nothing before God. That God can take this and pull us out of this. That no man should boast before God. God calls us to something much greater. And this is what He calls us to. Wherever you are, He wants you. He wants to draw you closer to Him. He wants you to walk in obedience to Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. You are so good. And Father, I pray Your blessings, Your great blessings to be upon us. Your great blessings to draw us forth. Father, if there be someone here who doesn't know You, who has never bowed their knee to You and said, Lord, I want to know You. Come into my heart. And has confessed their, has, has, a person here has never confessed their sins to You. Father, I pray that You draw them this day. And Lord, I pray for these young people that You draw them into more if they've not walked with You in obedience in the waters of baptism because of pride, because of just a lack of knowledge that they've never known. Father, I pray that they would humble themselves and be drawn and have their lives opened up to receive more. Father, if there be anyone here who has never known what it is to, to share Christ with another and see that other, person, heart, that other person's heart change, Father, I pray that You'd open their mouths and that You'd use them in the group in which they function, to speak forth the things of God, to take the conversation at hand and bring it to the things of God, as Philip did. Father, I pray for your grace, your grace to abound on these young people. Lord, may your mercies draw them closer. May through this year, this academic year, Father, I pray you draw them closer to Jesus. And in your name I pray. Amen.